Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit. Thank you for this book of Revelation. We pray that you would guide us now as we come, Father, to the 19th and 20th chapters. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Reviewing a little bit, uh, remember we have talked about different approaches to the book of Revelation. And uh, we said we were taking the idealist approach that uh, these uh, were not literal events as like a third of the agriculture being wiped out and so on, but they pictured things that are happening all along between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And that we're taking the approach that would say what you've got is a parallel uh, treatment of that period of time as uh, it goes back over it from different standpoints. And you start off with the seven letters to the seven churches, and these were, were real churches, but they represented the conditions that would exist, the conditions in those churches throughout this whole period of time. And uh, then you're, John is caught up to heaven, he sees the throne of God, and then uh, he sees uh, uh, various, uh, the Lamb of God comes and takes the uh, book out of the uh, scroll, out of the hands of the Lord, and he begins to open the seals, and as he does, different horses ride out. And we said that the first horse was Christ, this white horse, but as he goes forth to conquer. Uh, But the others here uh, would speak of what the world does as the the church holds out the light. And you had Christ among the seven lampstands, the opening scene of the book, Uh, seven being a number of completeness. And that uh, as the church holds out the light, the world persecutes the church. And these four horsemen, in a sense, uh, represent this, or three of them do, the persecution there of the church, whether it's physical persecution or economic persecution, as the church holds out the light. And then you had uh, the last seal, you had trumpets, seven trumpets. As the last seal is opened, one after another trumpet sounds. And as the trumpet sounds, well, a third of all the agriculture is worked out, uh, wiped out, or a third of the ships in the sea, or a third of the life in the sea, and so on. And we said trumpets warn, and this is God's judgment as he sends his judgment on the world for its persecution of the church. And it's a call to repentance. And you read in Amos where God would send uh, plagues or he would send war to Israel, and he said, yet you've not turned unto me. And I sent this, yet you've not turned unto me. And so that's the concept. And then we hit uh, chapter 11, and there we had the two witnesses. And incidentally, as we, as we moved along, we kept coming up to the second coming of Christ. Like in the sixth chapter, uh, you have where the sky rolls up. And uh, that's the destruction of heaven and earth, which will accompany the return of Christ. So we keep hitting that. That again says, well... This is backing up and starting forward and going, moving up again to the end and backing up and moving up again to the second coming. It is a parallel approach, apparently. In the 11th chapter, we hit these two witnesses. And uh, we said that uh, those pictured the church in its witnessing capacity, and they witnessed for three and a half years. And uh, the reason for three and a half years, symbolizing this whole period of time that the church is witnessing, was a parallel time in the Old Testament, the days of Elijah, when it didn't rain for three and a half years, and the Word of God demonstrated its power and so on. And uh, if you went to take him, where well, fire came from heaven and devoured you and so on. Uh, that the parallel, that where the church was persecuted but protected, and and uh, that uh, that's why that three and a half year period is used. But 
when the two witnesses have finished their testimony, why then they're killed on that great city where our Lord was killed, the streets of that great city where our Lord was killed, which is uh, Sodom and Egypt. Well, we said that that represented the world. And that there'll come a point when the church will have finished its testimony. And at that point, God does let the church be driven underground, so to speak, where it can't maintain its open, bold witness. And uh, this will correspond to uh, the final persecution that will take place under the Antichrist, who will come on the scene uh, toward the end, prior to the return of Christ, and head up the persecution of the church. And uh, uh, so uh, these two witnesses overcome. But after they've been dead a very short time, suddenly they stand to their feet and they're caught up to heaven. And that's the return of Christ. And that's the rapture. And again, at that point you get the final judgment. You get the destruction of heaven and earth again. Uh, Then we move behind the scenes in chapter 12 to where we had uh, the woman uh, with the 12 stars on her head and the uh, moon under her feet and she gives birth to a child who will rule all nations and he's caught up to God and to his throne and we said that's not Mary that's the, that's the true Israel that's the church Old and New Testament particularly as, as the true Israel brings forth Christ and, uh, and uh, that this dragon is standing before the woman waiting to devour her child as soon as he's been born and with his tail he drags a third of the stars down uh, to the earth well we said that third of the stars pictures the fall of Satan and the angels who joined him in his rebellion against God. Well, uh, in connection with uh, the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, telescope there, he's caught up to God and to his throne, it says there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon and his angels are cast out. Uh, Satan who accused the brethren before God day and night. And we said that's a casting out, not the original casting out, the original fall of Satan, but that's the casting out of Satan that took place when Christ conquered him at his death and resurrection. Uh, And no longer could his accusation against those in heaven have any validity because now Christ has died and and what can he accuse them of? Uh, If he says, God, how can you be a just God and allow these men in heaven, God says, I I can be absolutely just. My son has paid in full for their sin. I haven't overlooked my law. And so the accuser is cast down and uh, and, uh, but he persecutes the woman now who flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God and uh, Satan attacks her and this water comes out of his mouth, a flood uh, this would be the flood of deceit and lies and persecution and everything else but he, the earth swallows up the flood. He cannot, he cannot get to her and overcome her. And so he goes to make war against her children uh, who maintain the testimony of Christ. And uh, that's speaking of the individual Christian. So he, he attacks them. Uh, so that's chapter 12. And again, he goes to make war. He, he goes uh, after the woman. The dragon pursues the woman for three and a half years. It's the same period of time uh, where after the... And that's immediately following the catching up of Christ. And then you get this three and a half year period when he's persecuting the woman. So that period starts right at the ascension of Christ and it goes on past now. Uh, that's, that's that same period symbolizing the period between Christ's first coming and second coming. 
Then we got the uh, helpers to the woman. I mean, to the uh, uh, dragon. You had the beast out of the sea and the and the beast out of the earth. The beast out of the sea was the world in its persecution of Christians, as Satan stirs it up. And then you got the beast out of the sea, which uh, had uh, horns uh, like a lamb. Well, that's the false prophet. Uh, here's the world and its false testimony, all your cults and whatever, as they uh, and false religions as they lead people astray. That's one of the helpers of, of the dragon. So the world persecuting Christians, the world and its deceit and lies, uh, false prophecy. And then a third helper was Babylon the Great, the harlot. And here's this woman clothed in scarlet who uh, has got this cup full of adulteries and all these things. And uh, this pictures the world and all of its allurement and enticement and worldliness and so on. Here's another helper. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Or, or you think about uh, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. is not of the Father, but the world. So here are these three helpers. Now, and we see, uh, we read last week in the 18th chapter where Babylon the Great uh, finally collapses. Now, Babylon the Great is always collapsing. Uh, but there will be a final collapse of Babylon the, the Great City. Uh, again, that will be right at the end. Now, uh, today we come to the 19th chapter. Now let's look at chapter 19. Uh, and uh, here uh, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. In uh, <clears throat> chapter 1, I mean verse 1 of chapter 19. After this, says John, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Uh, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries this is Babylon and so here's this rejoicing in heaven over the destruction of Babylon and uh, because of the righteous judgment on her and the revenge of the blood of God's servants notice it says he has avenged on her the blood of his servants And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And uh, they get the response of the elders and the living creatures. It says the 24 elders and the four living creatures, uh, symbolizing all of uh, the angels and all of creation here, uh, fell down. The 24 elders, the church, Old and New Testament, and uh, the whole, all the people of God, all the true Israel, they all fall down and worship God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Uh, and so here's their response and worship. And then uh, in uh, verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water, like the loud peals of thunder and shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. And here's this re- uh, reign of God in its final form. Now, uh, all this is overthrown and God reigns. Uh, remember earlier it talks about a point where the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. The final ushering in of His absolute total reign. Now, uh, the, there's the rejoicing in heaven over the destruction of Babylon. Then the coming marriage of the Lamb. In verse 7, it says, uh, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Uh, 
fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, here's the, of course, the, the bride here is the church. And uh, uh, the, you have uh, the recording here of those present at the marriage supper. In verse 9, Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he, the angel, said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Or the spirit and inner content of all the prophecies are the testimony of Jesus is the idea there. Now, uh, when we uh, think of the, uh, says, blessed are those who are invited to this, well, in a sense, all men are invited. Uh, and you remember the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 22, the uh, king who gives a wedding feast for his son, and he sends his servants out to invite folks and all. And uh, uh, that's, <clears throat> but and many of them didn't come. So in a sense, everybody's invited, but the, only the true believers are going to be there who clothed here in white garments. It talks about those white garments uh, being the righteous acts of the saints. Well, uh, we uh, usually when you think of um, being clothed in white garments, it's the righteousness of Christ credited to us. And other places, and here when it talks about it being the righteous deeds, that'd just be another way of saying, you know, whenever you look at judgment in Scripture, and we will look at that in a moment, you always find that uh, He separates the true believer from the unbeliever by the fruit that they bear. And we'll see that in a minute. So every every true believer who's there will in one sense be clothed with righteous deeds. Not that he's earned his salvation, but he's evidenced his faith is genuine by the way he's lived. And we'll, we'll see that again in a moment here. Um, look over at Revelation 21 when you think of this marriage uh, scene. Revelation 21 and verse 1 now, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things are passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, I am making all things new. So again, here's the bride, and uh, it's, the, it's the city, or it's, it's the New Jerusalem. It's the people of God. It's the true church. And this is the consummation when every we now got the new heaven, new earth. And so here's the final... When all every enemy has been put down, and uh, this this great, uh, wonderful uh, final form of a communion with God here, so but with the the true believers, so that's what's being pictured by this marriage supper of the Lamb, and uh, and as we say back there in chapter 19, John just falls down and worships at this. Now, uh, in verse 11 of chapter 19. You get the riding forth, riding forth of Christ to make, to judge and make war. And, uh, we're backing up now to just before this wedding feast. We're backing up to 
the second coming of Christ. And uh, here's a description of that in verse 11. And this will be the final final battle here, and the final overthrow of Satan and his forces. Chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and uh, there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Uh, you remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so this is God the Son here. And uh, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword uh, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Notice he comes and here's this comes to comes in wrath at this point on his enemies. Uh, he says he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And again, we've hit that over and over as we've gone through the book, uh, where we would move up to that point. But uh, verse 17, here's the uh, summoning of the fowls to the supper of God. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God. This is where the fowls feed on the dead bodies of those that have been uh, overthrown in this last great battle. Uh, so it says, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, of horses and their riders, the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathering together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. Here's this great final battle. And, uh, but the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. Remember we had the beast out of the sea, which was the world in its persecuting power, and then the false prophet, the beast out of the earth. So here they are overthrown now. Uh, and uh, it says, uh, uh, the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And uh, let me think of the... Oh, think of... Some of the things that uh, are done by your cults, uh, where they do some miraculous signs, they they prophesy things that come to pass. Uh, they uh, <clears throat> uh, you get some miracles that take place in Christian science, some miraculous healings, those kind of things. Uh, and uh, these are false false things. You, you know that goes all the way back to Pharaoh and and uh, his magicians who come in when. Uh, when Moses throws down his rod and it becomes a snake and they throw down their rods and their rods become snakes. And that wasn't just something fancy. Their rods became snakes. But Moses' rod, Moses' snake ate up their snakes, remember? And uh, so you've always had the miraculous signs that Satan uses to persuade people of his lies. Um, The... uh, It says, uh, with these signs he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Those who received the mark of the beast would just be all those who, instead of making Christ their master, they're in Satan's kingdom. They're only two kingdoms. Everybody's in one kingdom or the other kingdom. Kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light. And uh, you have his mark if you're in his kingdom. 
And uh, it says, uh, <clears throat> the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. There's this false prophet in the and the beast there, these two helpers of the dragon, so to speak. Not individuals, it's just this overthrow of the world. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Uh, so one foe remains. Who's that? The dragon. Okay. And now we're going to deal with him in chapter 20. <clears throat> Uh, but well, let's look at chapter 20 let's read chapter 20 and then we'll look at the different uh, interpretations of it just an overview and then we will take it in detail but chapter 20 verse 1 I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key of the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and they had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So you've got Satan bound and he no longer deceives the nations for this thousand years. And you've got these saints reigning and they come to life and they reign for a thousand years with Christ. And uh, it says, they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests to God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over... Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive, to the, deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Uh, in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and uh, surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So here's uh, Satan loosed. He stirs up the nations. They come... And they, they encamp around the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And then suddenly, fire comes down from heaven and devours him. And it says, uh, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. Uh, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them and I saw the dead small and great standing before the throne the books were open another book was open which is the book of life the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books the sea gave up the dead that were in it death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what he had done then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire the lake of fire is the second death if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, how do we interpret this thousand years binding of Satan and reigning of the saints and so on? 
Well, you've got your chart in your outline, if you've got your outline there, that gives the four different interpretations of this. And let's just take a brief look at that. The first interpretation is called post-millennialism. The millennium is that thousand-year period. And uh, an example of that would be Whitby. And uh, you notice you've got your Old Testament, then you've got Christ's first coming, and then you've got the church going up. And then you've got the thousand-year period, the millennium. And then you've got the second coming. So he, according to this view, uh, <clears throat> he comes at post-millennium. He comes after the thousand years, but uh, the, in this view, the church is going to bind Satan by preaching the gospel. And as you get a progressively converted world, that's a progressive binding of Satan. And you'd get a point where you'd have like a 90% converted world, and, uh, and that would be this period of peace and so on. And, and uh, then there'd be a release of Satan and a final gathering of the 10% who remain, and uh, this final battle. So post-millennium, it comes back after this this thousand years of uh, the saints reigning and Satan being bound there. Now, uh, there are some things going for each of these views and there's some problems with each of these views. The, the thing going for that view is that you get Scripture that talks of a time coming when the, they won't hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and the lion's going to lay down with the lamb, lie down with the lamb and so on. And... Uh, a child will play on the hole of the dangerous snake. Well, uh, that's that's going for the view. The scripture talks about this time of the scriptures permeating the earth and so on. The problem with the view is we don't seem to be getting there. Where is this 90% converted world? And of course, they would say, save your Confederate money, boys. The South's going to rise again. They just hang in there. And uh, But other scripture doesn't seem to paint that rosier scenario. Other scriptures seems to talk about things waxing worse and worse, you know, and so on. And, and uh, Jesus talks about the wheat and the tares both growing and, and the harvest is the end of the world, that type of thing. So that's a problem for that view. Uh, now, the next view here is the historic pre-millennial view. And this says Jesus is going to come back prior to the, this binding and he's going to set up a literal kingdom on earth when he returns. And uh, he will bind Satan, and Satan will be out of commission for a thousand years, and, and Christians will reign with Christ, and uh, <clears throat> they'll be, uh, when he comes back, uh, dead believers, their bodies will be raised when he comes back, and they would reign with him this thousand years. Then at the end of the thousand years, he's released, and, and uh, he goes out <clears throat> and gathers the, uh, those who are not Christians and so on for this final great battle, and at that point, it's overthrown. And now the thing going for that view is that if the binding of Satan is a total binding, as it seemed to be as you read it there in Revelation 20, it obviously hadn't happened yet. If it's a total binding where he's out of commission, it obviously hadn't happened yet. The problem with that view is that uh, when you uh, read other places in the New Testament and Christ comes back, that's the end of the world. How do you work your thousand years in? For instance, Second Peter 3, where uh, 
Paul, uh, Peter says, uh, In the last days there will come scoffers walking after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. And uh, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. He's delaying giving men time to repent, but he won't delay forever. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which... It should say, he will come back, set up a thousand year kingdom on earth, bind Satan. But what it says is, in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Nevertheless, we look for a new heavens and a new earth. So he comes back and everything blows up. How do you work in your thousand years? And that's the pattern throughout the New Testament. So we got the problem, and 1 Corinthians 15 would be another illustration of that, and I could give a number of illustrations of that. The, so the, you either got to read Revelation 20 in the light of the rest of the New Testament and make Revelation 20 fit the rest of the New Testament, or you got to make the rest of the New Testament fit Revelation 20. I don't believe we can make the rest of the New Testament fit Revelation 20. If you say that binding is something yet future, I just don't believe you can make it fit. Second Peter 3 and 1 Corinthians 15 and a number of other places. So... Is there any way we can make Revelation 20 fit the rest of the New Testament, where Christ comes back and that's the end? And I think there is, and we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, uh, the third is the dispensational premillennial view, and uh, that's the view that there'll be two stages to Christ's coming. It's, it's like the premillennial in that he comes back and binds Satan, but in the dispensational premillennial, he's they've got two stages where first he doesn't come all the way to earth and Christians are caught up and then you have Jews being converted in a seven year interval in there and then he comes all the way to the earth and uh, that's uh, the end uh, there and uh, uh, he, uh, that's, as he sets up that thousand year kingdom at that point. Another problem with the, with the premillennial view, when Christ comes back, Who's left? Who's left? And he binds Satan. Who's left? What non-Christians are left to rebel towards the end here? Have we got a bunch of being born doing the thousand years that he's going to gather together and so on? Uh, that's another problem. when he comes, Because when you read about his return in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout of voice, the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise, we which are alive shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. But of the day and times, you have no need I write on you. You yourselves know that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they, non-Christians, just say peace and safety, then comes sudden destruction upon them as travail upon a woman and a child, and they shall not escape. So he comes back and they are wiped out. So who's left other than Christians? at that point. So that's another problem for the premillennial position. Now the amillennial position, let's take a look at it. Uh, Amill means no millennium. That's really not a good term. Non-millennium is not a good term. Now millennium is really what's meant. What this view is saying is that thousand year period represents the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming, which we've seen represented by three and a half years. But now it's being represented by a thousand years, a long period of time. And the binding of Satan is, and of course the problem is, well, how can you think of Satan as bound? Well, the binding of Satan 
in this view, is seen as a relative binding, not a total binding, like a dog on a long chain, where he can wreak havoc within limits, but he can't deceive the nations as they were deceived. He can't prevent the light from spreading. And uh, so he's bound in that sense. And uh, uh, you say, but as you read it, it seems to be a total binding, right? And so that's a problem for that view. Uh, that this view gets us over our Second Peter three problem because in this view he comes back and that's the end of the world. You get the new heavens, new earth, and that's that gets us over that problem. Also, in connection with the first coming of Christ, Christ referred to Satan as bound. You remember, he cast out demons. They accused him of doing it by being in league with the devil. And his answer, he said, Satan wouldn't cast out Satan. Uh, then the then his kingdom would be divided. But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, which was the truth of the matter, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. He says, it's my kingdom overcoming Satan's kingdom. It's not his kingdom divided. He said, how can you enter into the strong man's house and spoil his goods, except first you bind the strong man, then you will spoil his goods. And he's referring to Satan as the strong man, and he refers to him as bound, and that's prior to Christ's death and resurrection. And his death and resurrection was when he won a tremendous victory over Satan and openly triumphed over him. Principalities and powers, Colossians 2. Uh, so, uh, I, I believe that the binding of Satan took place at this first coming of Christ. Now, let's take that view and go and look at Revelation 20. Let's look at Revelation 20 now. And you've got your outline on Revelation 20. Uh, now, uh, we say the binding of Satan, in what sense is he said to be bound? And when and will this take place? And so on. Over 1,500 years ago, Augustine pointed out that this binding is the same as Matthew 12, 26 to 29, which is the strong man being bound and so on that we just referred to. And Colossians 2:15, Having spoiled principalities and powers, he, Jesus, made a show of them openly triumphing over them. So Satan is a defeated foe. He's a conquered foe. Now, in what sense is he bound? We said that he would deceive the nations no more. Uh, so he's just his activity curbed in this one area here, uh, and like a dog on a long chain. And uh, believers can enter into Christ's victory. Uh, again, uh, we saw that in Revelation, uh, in uh, Revelation 12, here when he was caught up, and then Satan was cast out. War in heaven, and Satan is cast out. Well, in John chapter 12, and uh, verse uh, 21 uh, and uh, 31 and 32, Jesus said, uh, Now is the judgment of this world, now is the prince of this world cast out. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And notice this casting out of Satan in connection with all men being drawn to him as, as the gospel would go out and light would be. Uh, what? How long would he be bound? It says a, a long period of time, a thousand years. Now, the reigning of the saints. Where does this reign take place? You tell me. Why do you say heaven? Oh, it's where Jesus is. And he says, I saw the souls of those that were beheaded. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. It's not their bodies. It's their souls. 
which points to a heavenly reign, his current reign, not to a reign on earth after he returns. I saw the souls of those that were beheaded. Uh, it says, this is the first resurrection. Uh, let's see. Uh, in, uh, uh, see where we are. Uh, it says, uh, and uh, verse 4, I saw thrones that were in, uh, on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus, because of the Word of God. That's not just those who have been beheaded. It's all true believers, and all true believers are persecuted. And uh, some far more than others. But all true believers, uh, as Jesus said, the world hates you. It hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love its own because you're not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, the servant is not above his master. So here's these people who have been persecuted, and they reign with Christ for this period of time. Uh, and uh, it says uh, that uh, they had not worshipped the beast or his image, and they had not received his mark on their forehead and in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. You say, well, how did they come to life? Well, John 5, 24. Jesus said, uh, the hour is coming and now is. Uh, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. The hour is coming, and now is. The walking around spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they who hear shall live. Uh, and uh, he said, don't be surprised at this. The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth, some to the resurrection of life, some to the resurrection of damnation. Notice that general resurrection of the saved and the lost at the end of time there. But uh, right now, you have passed from death to life if you're a Christian. And most of your life will be spent reigning with Him in heaven. You're reigning with Him right now. We reign with Him right now. But most of that's going to be your soul uh, reigning in heaven. But you've passed from death to life. So that's the first resurrection. Uh, <clears throat> the... Uh, uh, so we say, where does this reign take place? And it's a, it's a current reign in heaven. Who are those reigning? All true believers. The loosing of Satan. Verse 7. It says uh, that uh, uh, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Uh, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. The city he loves. Now, uh, he deceives the nations. Uh, he, he'll be allowed to shut down the light. The light, he wasn't able to shut it down, but now he's able to shut it down. And he deceives the nations. And uh, <clears throat> nation after nation will be shut down to the light of the gospel. And then he gathers them to the battle. Now, this is the battle of Armageddon, this final great battle. Uh, because... <clears throat> uh, uh, incidentally, if you don't take the view that I'm advocating, you got a great battle in, in uh, <clears throat> two or three times in here, and then you got another great battle, and you got three or four great battles here, you know. Uh, and uh, unless you take this view, this parallelism, the place of the battle. Where is this? Where does this battle take place? You tell me. He said Jerusalem. What did you say? Somewhere. Somewhere. Uh, what, what does it say here? It says they went up on the breadth of the earth. 
doesn't it? In a sense, this is a worldwide. He four corners of the earth, the breath of the earth. I think the camp of the saints in one sense here is the church. And so all across the world, the church is under this final great battle. Okay? Uh, final persecution, final great battle, where Satan is shutting down the light. But I also believe it includes Israel. And it will be a literal battle of a literal army around Israel. We'll take a look at that in just a minute. Uh, now, uh, the, uh, the church is, as we saw, the city of God in one sense. It's the camp of the saints. Uh, and right now, Israel is not the camp of the saints. Right now, is it? And Israel right now is secular at best. And, uh, you know, you've got some Orthodox Jews there and some liberal Jews there. Uh, you got Jews there, but a lot of them are very, very secular in, in their faith and, uh, uh, and don't even believe in, in Orthodox Judaism and so on. Uh, that's the current spiritual situation of the nation of Israel. Now, uh, the, uh, he gathers them to the battle, and uh, the battle here, as we say, is against the people of God, but I think it's also against the true Israel. Let's, I mean, against Israel as a nation. Hold your place here and look at Zechariah chapter 12, the last book in the Old Testament. Oscar, next to last book, I'm sorry. Uh, the, uh, yeah. Uh, I knew I'd done something wrong when y'all left. Okay. The, uh, chapter 12. Uh, Zechariah lived uh, 520 B.C. And, uh, but here's his prophecy at that point. It says, uh, This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, and so on. Verse 2, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. For all the nations who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic. Talking about those who come against Israel. And uh, he says, I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Now, here's this, uh, all these surrounding nations coming against Israel, and a great battle here, and uh, God protects Israel. Now, when did that happen? He wrote this 500 B.C. When did that happen? Well, you had Israel conquered, Every time you turned around, they got conquered. You have uh, you have uh, your Persians conquer them, uh, the Medio Persians, and uh, you have, and they've been released and gone back and rebuilt the temple. At this point, uh, then <clears throat> along comes Greece, and then along comes Rome, and they're constantly being conquered. And uh, and uh, in 70 A.D., Rome destroyed it. And so there was never a point where this scene has taken place up to this point. You had something like it in 1967, wasn't it? It was pretty much similar to what happened here at that point. Okay, Uh, let's read on. It says uh, on verse 8, On that day the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David, the leaders, will be like God. 
like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and prayer, supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. Now, this is God speaking. And he says, they, the people of Israel, will look on me, God, the one they have pierced. Of course, that's a prophecy of the death of Christ. But notice what happens when they look at him. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day there will be weeping in Jerusalem. It will be great, like the weeping of Haddon and Renum, and the plain of Megiddo, and so on. All the land will mourn. Here is true repentance of the whole nation of Israel over having crucified their Messiah. Now, they, they looked on him whom they pierced 2,000 years ago, but they didn't mourn. Some people mourned, but the great majority of the nation didn't mourn. So this is true repentance that's going to take place in connection with this last battle when these nations come against the nation of Israel. And Israel is going to be converted. They are going to become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ prior to the return of Christ in association with this final great battle. Look at verse, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. They will be forgiven for their sin. And uh, jump on down to chapter 14 and verse 2. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. Uh, the, nation, the city will be captured. The houses ransacked. The women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. So this attack on Israel, and since we talk about this worldwide attack on the church, but then it also centers in on Israel, which at that point is not yet converted. But then in the middle of that attack, suddenly God opens their eyes to the fact that Jesus is the true Messiah, and they are deeply repentant. Uh, the attack is initially successful. Well, half of them are going to exile, whatever it was. And then, suddenly God intervenes. Notice, it says, verse 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day his mount will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountains moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Isaiah. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That's the second coming of Christ. And uh, I don't think the mountain's really going to split, although it may. I think what's being pictured there is the idea of a sudden escape. I think the escape is going to be being caught up when he comes back. That will be caught up. They'll be caught up. And that'll be the escape in a sense. But... At any rate, uh, there's this, this sudden, he, he comes with all of his holy ones. Now, all those holy ones could be the souls of believers. They're going to come back with him. Or it could be the angels. The angels are going to come back and wreak havoc on those who are attacking Israel there and on all who are not Christians. So, uh, that he comes with all of his holy ones. Now, uh, I believe that that's what's being pictured here in this final battle. Now, uh, and, and then you get the final overthrow of Satan. There's a problem with what I just said. 
if you read on in the chapter, if you read on in the chapter, it'll, it looks like he sets up a thousand year reign on earth. Or he sets up a reign on earth. And so I didn't read that part to you. I don't want to read <laughs> uh, Let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at it. It says, uh, <clears throat> on that day there will be no light, uh, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. Without evening, uh, When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, in the summer and in the winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and His name, the only name. Now, in my opinion, what you're reading about there is the new heavens and the new earth that will be ushered in when Christ comes back. It didn't talk about destroying, at this point, destroying the earth and heaven. But I believe that's taken place. And what you're reading about there is the new heaven and new earth. Hold your place here and look back at Revelation 22 for a minute. It says, uh, then, uh, well, let's look at chapter 21 where it talks about, uh, I did not see a temple in the city. This is the new Jerusalem now. We're in the new heaven, new earth here in Revelation. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it. The glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Uh, and uh, on no day will its gates ever be shut. There will be no night there. We, we read about the unusual light back here. And then uh, in uh, chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street. Back here, you know, it talked about on that day living waters will flow out from Jerusalem. Now this is clearly the new heaven and new earth over in Revelation, and I believe it's the same thing here. Let's read on back in Zechariah 14 for a minute. And uh, it talks about the Lord being king over the whole earth, verse 9. And uh, then uh, verse 12, it says... Uh, this will be the plague which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Every man will seize the hand of another, and they will attack each other, and so on. Then uh, <clears throat> uh, verse 16, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king. Now that sounds like they're survivors here, non-Christian survivors, but they go up to worship the king. So did they become Christians in this final thing? And uh, so this, this would give an idea of he sets up a kingdom and you've got people around who are not necessarily true believers, uh, which I don't agree with, but I, that, you could get that idea. It says uh, in verse 17, If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, they will have no reign. If the Egyptian people do not go up to take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague He inflicts on the nations that do not go up to summer. So here are people on the earth after Christ comes back who don't go up to worship. That would seem to lend credence to the pre-mill view that He comes back and sets up this thousand-year kingdom. You say, well, <clears throat> how do you handle that? Well, uh, I interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament just like I interpret the book of Revelation by the New Testament. So if I get a pattern in the New Testament of what's going to happen when he comes back, which we do, the world blows up and so on, to get a new heaven, new earth, 
And I've got to interpret this. We interpret the old by the new. You interpret the symbolic by the didactic, the clear teaching. And so uh, I'd say, well, I'm, I'm, let me see if I can make this fit my pattern, the, where Christ comes back and you get the new heavens and new earth. Uh, look on. It says uh, in, uh, in verse 20, On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem will be holy to the Lord Almighty. Everything is holy. The horses, the bells on the horses, everything is holy. There's not going to be anybody that doesn't come up and worship. What's being said here is that you won't have the conditions then that you've got now. What happens now if somebody doesn't worship the Lord? It doesn't rain on them, right? No. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust now. Then it won't work like that. They won't have those mixed conditions. You'll have everything will be holy. And that's what's being said here. The, the Lord will be king of the whole earth. Everything will be holy. There won't be anyone who doesn't come up to worship the Lord. So I believe that's the way to make it fit. Uh, let's look back at Revelation 20 real quick and we wrap this up. Uh, you get the final overthrow of Satan in verse 10 of Revelation 20. It says uh, that uh, uh, that uh, the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So when Christ comes back from that point on forever, Satan's out of commission. And uh, then the final judgment, the dead are judged. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence as the destruction of heaven and earth with the return of Christ. And uh, there was no place for them, uh, for heaven and earth. You get a new heaven and new earth, which you're going to get in chapter 21. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And uh, another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Now, your body would be in the sea. Your soul wouldn't be in the sea. Your body would be in the sea. So what we're dealing with here is the resurrection. When Christ comes back, there'll be a general resurrection. All believers will be resurrected when, and be caught up to meet him in the air, the rest will be wiped out, but then their bodies will be raised, and their soul and body rejoin, and, uh, and those who are in hell, their soul will re-enter their resurrected body. So you'll have a general resurrection of all men, and they'll all go and stand before God for this final judgment. And uh, notice how they're judged. The judge would judge according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the devil in it, death and hell gave the devil in them. And each person would judge according to what he had done. Now, you remember in Matthew 25, Jesus pictures this, and he said, uh, He'll say to those on his right hand, Come, ye blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. For I was a hunger, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. He said, Lord, when saw we thee hungry? He said, Inasmuch as you did unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Uh, he said, well, and then to the others, he said, I was hungry and you didn't eat me. Depart, ye curse it. You know? And as you read that, it sounds like you're saved. You go to heaven or hell according to your good deeds. And if that was all we had to go on, that's what we'd have to say. Whenever you hit a judgment scene, they're always judged by their works. And yet, when you read about salvation, you're not saved by your works. You're saved as a gift by grace through faith. How do you put those two together? Isn't that a conflict? No, you put them together. How do you separate an apple tree from a pear tree? By the fruit that it bears. 
And God can separate the saved from the lost by the fruit that they bear. Remember, Jesus said, a good tree won't bring forth evil fruit, and an evil tree won't bring forth good fruit. Make the tree good, and the fruit will be good. And so, the true Christian, faith without works is dead. The true Christian, the trend of his life is going to be one of concern for his fellow man, concern to do God's will. He's not perfect by any means, but the trend of his life is going to be one of obedience. And so, God separates the saved from the lost on that basis. And we can't do that. Because we can't see motives and all that kind of thing. Sometimes we can do it. I mean, sometimes I can sit. I can. Well, never mind. <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, uh, the uh, <clears throat> so that's that's what you have there. Is final resurrection. Is final judgment. Now you get a judgment of the saved and the lost, and then you get a judgment of the saved over here for reward in heaven, and you get a judgment of those going to hell for degrees of punishment in hell. They're going to be degrees of reward in heaven. I'm going to preach about that this Sunday. <clears throat> degrees of reward in heaven. We'll be dealing this Sunday with 1 Corinthians 3 and we get into that in the latter part of 1 Corinthians 3 this next Sunday. But, uh, uh, so it says, Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. No more death. That's, that's what's being said there. No more death after that. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. All true believers, of course, are written in the book of life. Uh, let, me, uh, let me stop at that point and see if you've got questions. I apologize for going over here. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 8. Let me look that up here. Uh, okay, I'm not sure I understood the question myself. Uh, chapter 22. Yeah, yeah, Revelation chapter 22 there. About uh, on verse 8 of chapter, uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, and so on. You read in uh, Revelation 22 about out of the, the new Jerusalem there uh, in the new heaven and new earth that out of the new Jerusalem comes this river of living water. So I say that's the same thing. That's really talking about the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21, uh, chapter 21, a new heaven and new earth. So everything after 21 is the new heaven and new earth in the book of Revelation. But here we get a river. See, this is talking about a river. Oh, half to the western sea. Okay. Half to the eastern sea. Good, good question. Okay. In uh, Zechariah 8, it says the living water will flow out of Jerusalem half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. Back here it says, I saw a new heaven, new earth. First heaven, first earth was talking passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So if I said you've got a, uh, that this is the same as that, the new heaven, new earth, back in Zechariah, it seems to contradict. In Revelation, your sea is primarily talking about these nations in turmoil, the beast comes out of the sea, the and so I, I think, I don't know whether it's literally going to be any sea in the new heavens, new earth or not. Any literal sea. Sea in the book of Revelation isn't talking of a literal sea. It's talking of uh, uh, you find this beast coming out of the sea. And the, the sea often in Daniel, for instance, is, represents as you get the sea tossed around, represents the turmoil of the nations as they rebel against God and as they persecute Christians. Uh, again, uh, I, I think we've got to interpret that Zechariah 14 in the light of the rest of the New Testament and in the light of the rest of the New Testament when Christ comes back uh, that will be the end of this world it will be a new heavens new earth and uh, so the fact that it mentioned a sea and waters coming out of Jerusalem and flowing down here and here see I don't, I don't believe it's going to be a literal I don't believe it's going to be a literal river in the new heaven new earth flowing out of the temple here this is just a way of picturing this water of life, this eternal life. That's the way the river... Remember, Jesus say, said, uh, out of you will flow rivers of living water. This spoke here of the Spirit. 
So that's really what, when it talks about this river of water flowing, it's talking about perfected fellowship in this, with God and the Spirit of God giving life to everything there and that type of thing. Don't I think the earth is kaput <laughs> after, <laughs> after Christ after, comes back? Yeah. I I, there is no more. Yeah, nothing. yeah. When Christ comes back, I don't believe that the earth will, I believe the earth will, you know, it says it will yeah. pass away, yeah. Uh, elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also in the works of there and shall be burned up. Well, that's a good question. Where will heaven be in the new heavens and new earth? Well, uh, it could be that you'll have heaven on earth. In other words, you'll have a new earth, and it could be that we'll all dwell on this new earth. One day I was driving along the car, and our kids were young, and it was just gorgeous. And I said, uh, what do you reckon heaven be like? Is this pretty on earth? And, uh, and I said, well, what would you like it to be like? And they said, they thought about it, and they said, well, like this earth without all the sin and <laughs> death and Sickness and, well, maybe it'll be something like it, you know. I'm just concerned that dogs be there, right? We want to <laughs> okay. <laughs> How about cats? No cats, no cats. <laughs> I'm serious. So, oh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, it could be that you're going to have heaven on a new earth. In other words, it could be that, that uh, when it... That we will all live on a new earth, but no longer subject to disease or sickness or anything like that. Well, you, well, you don't marry or are given in marriage, so I don't think that. Yeah, we don't need an earth if we don't have new generation. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just the destruction of death. There won't be any more death. Hades is the separation of of uh, the soul from the body. As as Hades can mean the grave, it can mean the separation of soul from body. It can mean hell. Probably, since it's thrown into hell here, it doesn't mean hell. So it uh, it, it could be uh, separation. There won't be any more separation of soul and body. That's probably what it means. Or there won't be any more grave. I think this will, it could be over a, a fairly brief period of time that you'll get this final great battle. <clears throat> and how literal a battle it'll be in outside of Jerusalem, I don't know. In other words, will there be actual fighting going on between nations and so on outside of Jerusalem or just this persecution of, uh, of true believers or of the church around the world and you don't have to have an army to persecute the church you know there's nowhere in the world that the church has got an army so you don't have to have an army to persecute the church but uh, uh, it could be that there are literal battles and 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 that the final there'll be a final literal great battle that'll focus on Jerusalem there and you will have true believers there and they will have an army at that point, in a sense, uh, when they get converted. But uh, uh, how, just what period of time all that will culminate in, don't know. But I, I know this, that uh, the conditions are very ripe for all this to start taking place, if you just think about it. Uh, with the hatred of the surrounding nations, uh, the, the intense persecution of Christians that's picking up around the world and those kind of things, uh, uh, conditions are ripe for this to begin to get initiated. You're William, William Henderson. You're reading William Henderson? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, the river the river of life is just eternal life, which is communicated to us through the Spirit of God, uniting with our spirit. That's what the And that river, that river's flowing. You know, Jesus talked about the Spirit being given in a full way, and out of you will flow rivers of living water. Oh, I don't think, I don't really believe it in conflict. Yeah. Okay, let's stop at that point. Uh, let me wrap up just by pointing out one or two things uh, if we've interpreted this correctly then Revelation 20 is consistent with this parallelism again where we backed up and come through this 
period of time between the first coming and second coming of Christ, if we've interpreted correctly. It's consistent with the other. We see the urgency of the missionary task of the church because uh, there's going to be a day when we won't be able to do this because the church is going to get shut down around the world. Uh, another lesson uh, would be that this future judgment is very real. And how will you fare and how will others around you fare in that judgment? And uh, the, the church is in for a rough time, uh, if this is correct, before it's all over. And uh, so don't think some strange thing has happened to us when uh, we get persecuted. But remember, Satan's season will be brief and the saints reign now. And uh, so rejoice in glorious hope. Jesus the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. We soon shall hear the archangel's voice. The trumpet of joy God shall sound. Rejoice. Let's have prayer. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, to... Uh, just uh, use these things to frame our thinking about life and death and uh, our mission and uh, about loved ones who have gone on, about the reality of temptation and the importance of walking with you and being prepared. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.